0: Hi everyone, this is Dina McKay, host of Black Tech Unplugged, and welcome back to a brand new episode. You can find full show notes for this episode at blacktechunplugged.com. This is episode 11, and on this episode I have the lovely Dawn Dixon. Many of you probably know Dawn as a serial entrepreneur, but she's also a tech maven. On this episode, you're going to hear about how Dawn started off working in a news station and somehow found her way to tech. You'll learn about how she always stayed ahead of her time and her constant urge for learning. So let's get it.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I want to introduce Don Dixas. Hi, Don. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. So, Dawn, let's get started and talk about you. So you are a serial entrepreneur. So let's talk about what you're doing currently. Well, right now... Like
2: you said, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and that just generally means that people like me just can't stop starting businesses, solving problems when they get ideas. So right now, I actually have two companies. One is a shoe company called Flat Out of Heels, which are rollable flats only when their feet hurt. And it's not a tech business. I mean, there is a tech component. Of course, I rely heavily on e-commerce tools, marketing tools, digital marketing tools. These are all technical things that um, enhance retail but I also have a software company, which is definitely all tech. And we've created a platform that is essentially like a Shopify for vending machines. So it's a commerce platform that allows vending machines to collect data and information about their customers and who's shopping with them. So that's really what I'm focused on. It's called solutions vending. And that's my number one um, priority right now.
1: Great. So you mentioned FlatOut is not a technical company, but you do have a technical component with your software company. But how did you get started into the tech industry?
2: I went to school for information technology in 2001. Yeah, I went to DeVry. And this was a very early in the World Wide Web years. And um, I was just curious about technology. And I had went to school for journalism that's what my degrees in journalism and marketing and when i was in college i was working at the news station as like the entry-level person my job was to upload the, the news that had aired already onto the website so it was like FTP at the time and it was no such thing as live streaming at the time but i knew then that it was like you know i was interested it was i was onto something and at this time there was only one person at the whole station that did digital and that was me And that's because nobody wanted to do it, (laughs) and it was new. So I learned a lot just being the only person doing it. And so I went – then I just wanted to go to DeVry and just learn more because I felt that if I did want a serious career in journalism, it would be helpful for me to have technical skills as well because I really – I just kind of had the foresight that technology was going to replace a lot of jobs, and you have to be – you have to have those tools. So um, I went to school for it, and I learned how to code, and – I learned how to do a lot of things, make games, take computers apart, repair computers, just because I'm, like, kind of nerdy. And I knew I didn't want to be a coder, but it was helpful to have that, that skill set. And so when I was in, in DeVry, I went and got an internship with Nationwide Insurance, and my job was business analyst working on the intranet, which was a new thing as well. So companies having, you know, internal communication amongst each other in an in, in internal web just for corporate communications and things. So I worked on that. And I really, um, you know, it was it was really interesting. And so, I just started thinking of ways of how technology could really help improve my life. And and uh, at the time, a friend of mine, he was also working at Nationwide, and we had the, the idea to start a website where we could just post events and create an online community around events. So that was my first tech company. Just how it was created out of me and another person having an idea because we got tired of trying to, like, crawl around or look in newspapers or go find flyers to see, you know, what was going on in the city. So we created this web platform, and it really just took off. Um, and this was, like, in the time before there was email blast. so I was sending out – we had a weekly email newsletter. And email was really new. At this time, AOL was sending around CDs, you know, DVDs, rather, to burn them um, to get your email and get – instant messenger this was a really big deal american online AOL IM was like so big but there was still no like email client there was no email marketing so i started that and we started doing online advertising and we had a really large email list that we were able to collect just from going around to events and we had about five girls with clipboards at events and just going around asking people for their email and writing them down and that grew into a income source for me for years of just sending out emails to people. So it started out as just sending it in BCC and AOL. And then when they came out with things like Topica, that was the first email client that I used. This was way before MailChimp or anything like that or Constant Contact. But that's how I was able to make money. And so it's kind of, I got the bug early in the very beginning. And I've always incorporated some type of technology into what I was doing, mainly just in the digital marketing space. And then as I just continued to grow my career, you know, through doing shoes, doing shoes and vending machines, I was always just curious about software and the scalability of software and how these software companies are were making a lot of money just by developing solutions. And I wanted to do that too. And that's kind of how I am. Like I'll see something and I'm like, oh, I want to do that or I can do that. And I'll just find a way to do it. So that's where I am now. This is my, my software journey here.
1: And I know I want to... Take a step back. I know you mentioned when you were at Nationwide, you were a business analyst, and I just want you to elaborate. Personally, I also did internships as a business analyst. But for people who are listening who don't know the role of a business analyst, why don't we kind of talk about what that role looks like?
2: You know, I I really don't remember anymore. It was like oh god, like seventeen years ago. So I don't even know what it means (laughs) anymore today. But back then, Mm -hmm. from what I can recall, I was working on the internet working on the code, doing testing, I was doing a lot of like user testing, testing you know all the links. I wrote a lot of the content in the code and then um, you know the code wasn't nearly as advanced as it is today and then just testing it and making sure that everything worked. and the testing in itself just took so much time making sure that everything was flowing correctly. So maybe if you could jog my memory and tell me uh, or tell the audience and everybody listening about business analysts, I'd be interested to actually remember what I used to do because I
1: can't remember. From my perspective, when I interned as a business analyst, so it was similar to you, but it sounds like it's changed a little bit because I was more so on the client-facing side, gathering the requirements. And then it sounds like you were also doing testing, though, which I know has been kind of separated out to a QA analyst now. But yep. really, both of those, I guess you would say both of all of that responsibility is really under one umbrella. Unfortunately, it sounds like they've separated, which because for me, that yeah. was fun doing the testing part and the requirements. And now it's kind of like people just do gathering the requirements as a business analyst. But that's interesting that that's how you started out. And then as time went on, you kind of, you were ahead of the game a lot because you were doing digital marketing back in a time where digital was barely a thing.
2: Yeah, exactly. I, I feel like in my early career, I was always like ahead of it, but too, uh, before they were ready. And so now I'm happy that I'm finally like a little bit ahead, but not too far ahead. Because even with the vending machines, I was like five years ahead of like the United States trends in vending. And now it's finally coming. But when we created our website, we had streaming video, we had streaming music, a media player. This was before YouTube. So I just was living in Ohio, and we were young black kids, and we didn't know. We didn't understand what we built and mm. the value of it. We weren't in Silicon Valley. We didn't have any technical mentors or, you know, anything like that. I mean, I was like the only black person at in my classes at DeVry, and, you know, it just wasn't, you know, there was, the word startup didn't even, like, never heard that before. And there was no accelerators or incubators or, I mean, nothing, nothing that exists today. So when we built this tech company, which was like, we had a community, we had 15,000 subscribers. We were getting over 100,000 unique hits monthly in local. So it could have really scaled, but we just didn't know how because I actually never heard the word scale. So it was just, we were just way ahead of our time with it.
1: Right. And I want to touch a little bit because I I always forget you're from Ohio because I'm from Ohio. And I know the feeling of going to a, you know, you're going to a tech class and you're the only person that looks like you in there because tech wasn't really a big thing in Ohio, except for, I would say, in the last few years. Now we have incubators and more people involved and more people wanting to learn tech. So yeah. definitely, I can imagine when you're doing this stuff, people are probably like, what do you know about tech?
2: <laughs> yeah, like a 21-year-old black girl going to DeVry for IT, it was definitely not, nobody really understood. And even the classes were different. I'm sure today, if people are taking classes, techno classes, you're not, I mean, they literally were having us take apart computers and put, build computers from scratch. So. I'm sure just a lot of things have changed as technology has has evolved. Um, it was just like a really well, like a, a, a like a comprehensive IT course, and then like the concentration. I didn't like any of the concentrations, so I actually dropped out like my last semester before I graduated because all the classes were for your major, and I didn't like
0: any
2: of them. So I was like, well, I'll just save my last $8,000 and not even graduate because I don't care, <laughs> and I never graduated. <laughs> because I just didn't want a degree in any of those things. Like one was like um, systems as far as like doing administration servers. I didn't want to be a a coder. I knew I didn't want to sit in code. I mean, that was very boring. I can't handle it. The great thing about knowing code is I can still to this day, like go into some code, like, you know, I use Shopify and I can go into the code and I can follow it. I mean, I can't Mm -hmm. do it from scratch, but I can, absolutely make edits, make changes. I can read it t- to understand basically what's going on. I can insert code. I can insert pixels. And like, I can do all the all those type of things myself. And that's really why I'm glad that I went. And it was never to be, in, you know, like I said, a coder, but I don't want to be left out. Like, I don't like to be, I don't like to not understand things. And so I, even now to this day, I'm constantly learning or taking a class or reading something to help stay on top of the trends.
1: Right, I'm very much the same way. I, you know, took some coding classes. That's not my that's not my thing, that's not my jam, but I'm happy that if for instance I'm building something, I can go in and change that code or I have an inkling of what's going on because I have feel like we have a similar attitude where it's like I just like to know what's going on in case anything happens. But with that right. being said, so you didn't graduate. Do you ever do you feel like that was the best decision, or do you ever feel like you might go bad? No,
2: I have no need. I mean, they'll end up giving me an honorary master's degree before I'm done with this. So I have no need to pay for any more education like that. And really, a degree from DeVry doesn't hold a lot of weight. So like I got, I feel like I got what I wanted out of it, which was the knowledge and the courses that I wanted to take. But I wasn't in it to get it. I didn't care about the degree because it, at the end of the day, like I said, I didn't really feel like it was that strong of a thing. If I say, oh, I have a degree from DeVry, nobody's going to be like, you're hired. And I right. knew I wasn't going to work for anybody. So it just was like I wanted those skills. I wanted to understand and I wanted to apply them, to those skills to what I was doing in journalism at the time, which that was, I had plenty of information to do that. I could build a website, and I was. I started a consulting company. I started to build websites and, um, you know, helping people with their digital marketing strategy, and I did that for like six years as a consultant. So, no, I don't want to go back. I do want a master's degree, which I've, I'll get one. Like I said, I'm not going back to school. I could teach a class at this point. <laughs> That's right. just how I feel about it.
1: <laughs> well, and then so when you're, you know, you're starting your tech journey, you're at Dubai and not that many other people that look like you. Did that ever make you feel discouraged or kind of make you feel awkward being in that situation?
2: No, I really, it really didn't affect me at all um, mainly because you know being from Ohio I went to Ohio State not to say that I'm used to I'm used to being like a minority of course but it didn't it didn't discourage me nothing it never even occurred to me until way later what I was doing like me being in tech like I it wasn't a conversation nobody ever talked about tech as a thing and nobody ever talked about like there's no women in tech or there's no black people. It just wasn't a conversation that I ever heard until way later. And at the time I just was taking classes to get some information to strengthen my earning potential. So for example, when I graduated from Ohio State with my degree in journalism, I got offered a job for twenty one thousand dollars a year. And I said, No, there's no way. Even back in two thousand I was definitely not working for that. But then when I went to Dervride just for a couple, um, you know, for like a semester and a half and I was interning at nationwide, I was making fifteen dollars an hour as an intern. And then I got offered a job for forty two thousand um doing marketing and working on the internet from a marketing capacity. But I seen that the people that were the coders and the the tech people were getting paid fifty, 000, sixty thousand there's no way that I would make twenty. You know, so this was like a way for me to strengthen my my tool set. I never thought about it even as a competitive thing to be competing with other people. I just wanted to, I knew the kind of life that I wanted to live and that's what I was doing. So it it, it never dawned on me at all that I was like the only one or
1: the only black person. I just look back in hindsight like, wow, like nobody was there. Right. And I ask you that because obviously, you know, the climate of the space now and a lot of people are, you know, diversity and inclusion. And I just think it's awesome that being in that situation now, I feel a lot of people get discouraged easily. Like, oh, I'm the only one. There's no one who looks like me here. Why would I want to be in this space? But someone like yourself, who you're in the space, you're by yourself, but you never got discouraged. You kept going and you knew this was something that you were passionate and interested about and it didn't care who was around you. You knew what you wanted. And I think that's an awesome attitude to have. Thank you. Yeah,
2: I have a kind of a philosophy that everything's not for everybody. And if I, I feel I get it, you know, and I'm on the fence, so maybe you can help me shut my this. I actually saw one of your posts on Instagram a while ago, and I commented on it, and I would love to talk about that later. But, you know, I never had the attitude that anybody owed me anything or should open doors for me. And I just go out and just get it. And, I, and I've always felt that I, there was nothing beyond my ability. And so I think if more people would think that way, and a lot of times I feel like um, people, to me, it's like an excuse when people are like, I'm the only one, or there's nobody like me, or I don't have any example. There's a quote by Gandhi, be the change you want to see, like, go do it. And it's really hard for me to identify or understand when people use that as an excuse not to move forward.
1: Right. And I understand. And let's actually, so I know you mentioned a post that I posted on social media a while back. So let's just go ahead and talk about it right now. (laughs) So I think you're referring to the post. I believe it was me and my friend Keisha. I think we were talking about people who, what was it about? It was along the lines of, I guess, people, the same people getting the same events. Was that what it was about? Yes, remind me, was that. So, okay. we were referring to the post on Instagram where my friend Keisha and I were discussing people, the same people being at every tech event, speaking and I guess presenting, we'll say. So, let's mm-hmm. talk about that for a little
2: bit. So, I know. And you also you say, listened. like, getting invited, you know, like not only speaking yeah. and being there, but like just being in the room, like, getting an invitation yeah. to go.
1: So what are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, I know I remember I commented. I don't know what I I don't remember what I said exactly, but I do. It was not so much your post, what you said, because I understand. I understand your position. It was what a lot of people were saying in response to it. And um, I feel that, you know, nobody's going to ever. This is my mentality, even though it does happen. It happens. People do things. People helped me out in my life a lot. And I've had mentors. But the way I look at it is nobody's going to ever open the door for you. You have to go out there and put yourself in the room. You have to go out there and like, I have been, I was an outsider looking in, you know, I remember I have to look at people like everybody that I'm friends with now and mentors, Angela Benton and Clarence Wooten and Charles Hudson and Monique, I mean, all the big people in tech that are now my peers and my friends, they, I was looking at them on stages and in magazines and I was like, damn, I, I want to do that or like Felicia Hatcher, Brian. and I was, they're the same, you know, they, now I'm among those people that get invited to everything. And, but I said, I want to do that and I can do that. And they're not any better than me. You know, I want to go do it. And I just did it. I put myself in those places. I did the work. I networked. I, um, I followed the path they laid. The great thing about this day and age is like, you can see everybody's story unfold. You can go and see how they did it. It's it's documented on social media or somehow, like if you can see how they went, got where they went. And I literally just went and followed those footsteps. I did exactly what they did. They thought they were, they were blogging. They started going to conferences. I I went from going to conferences and seeing them speaking. And I was like, I want to be a speaker. I want to do that. So I started volunteering to speak and then I started getting booked to speak. And so it, it's, it's as easy as it sounds. It's, it's it just takes, t- takes patience, time grinding. People need to see that, you know, you really want it, that you're, that you're focused, that you're committed and they'll welcome you. The community that I'm a part of is a very welcoming, um, t- close-knit community. And, you know, they don't alienate people. And, and I can say that because I'm a part of it and I've, and they welcomed me with open arms because you have to, you have to work hard to get there. Nobody's going to hand you or just say, oh, you're black. You're a black woman. Welcome. No, you have to do the work. You have to show that you can be a part of this elite group of people. And it's, that's just the way that it works in, any, any, um, in this society, in any structure. Like everything that we go to, it's available for people to go to. It's out there. The information is there. You have to be out there looking for the information. I study. um, I have everything I'm interested in on Google Alerts. So I get the news on every topic that I want to learn about every day to my inbox. So if somebody really wants to know about black tech events or women tech events, get it on Google Alerts. Find out where they're going to be at. I wouldn't I use the word stalk in a playful way like not physically stalking a person but social media wise like I would be on on everything they're doing be where they're at send emails yeah I would be on everybody that I was interested in on every event that I'm on engaging with them on social media, sending them LinkedIn messages, showing up at events that they're at, being there, asking the questions. Standing up and being that person at the conference that'll stand up and ask a question because that way everybody sees you. I was making sure that I was always putting myself in the position to be recognized. And after a while of going to these events, paying and being there, then I started getting invited to go for free. After being at so many events where I'm talking and speaking and asking questions, people recognize me. Oh, I saw you at the last event and they start to talk. It takes years. It doesn't just happen because you're black and you want to be in tech and I I want people to stop feeling entitled to anything that, you know, yeah, we're, we're working very hard. I know that I am, and I know people in my network are working very hard to open doors for us as a, you know, for the culture, as they say, but it's not going to just be walking in. You're not walking in the door. I'm not going to just let anybody have access to my network and the things that I've built and worked hard to contribute to to let them just walk in and just have it and not earn it. And so I understand where people might feel like they're left out, and all they got to do is go get it. Go show up. Ask somebody, can I go with you? My experience with these people, all of them, they're very open to help. I can reach out. And they're just so amazing. The Black Tech community is amazing. It's not, nobody acts like they're too good. Nobody acts like they're better that they can't help. Everybody's always down to help. But again, there's no handouts in this.
1: Right. And I think a lot of people, at least from my perspective and hearing other people's conversations, I always feel that everyone wants to say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to do this and that. But when it comes to the actual effort and work part, that's where everything gets distinguished because a lot of people want that title and that praise, but they don't want to put in that work.
0: And then when it
1: comes to things, just like you were saying, how you, how you can get invited to these events, how you can become that person that everyone's reaching out to. It's like, well, if you don't put in that work and you're not out here, how are we supposed to know you're somebody who I'm supposed to be connecting with and inviting? Because unfortunately, if I don't see your face, I can't, I don't really know exactly. what you're doing. Everybody's working It's like hard. a
2: fraternity or a sorority. You know, yeah. if, you, if you have interest in a fraternity or sorority in college, you show up to all their meetings. You show up to all their info sessions. You do the volunteer service, you know, the community service things. You show up and you're there. And, right. and it's, you know, luckily the hazing is different. But there's hazing involved with anything in life that you want to do. As far, that, that's a community. That's an organization of people. That's a you have to get proved that you really want to be in and that you're trustworthy, and that you're for the good of the community. And it's not for everybody. And, you know, then there's levels, there's levels, there's and you have to go through the levels. And all of us do. I'm not at the highest level at all, not even close, but I'm not at the lowest level either. And I'm just working up to where I want to be. And, and people, you decide where you want to be in your life and put yourself there. You know, I don't necessarily want to, I don't want to be like Oprah cause I don't want to work those kind of hours. So I've already said, I'm not going to be at that level because I don't want to be a, a celebrity and I don't want to work those type of, I don't want to work like that for the rest of my life. Some people do. So you have to know where you want to go and, and it's, it's definitely obtainable, but I can't relate to a person that complains or, you know, wants to just be, wants some type of a. Uh, of a handout or somebody just to give them information. Like the biggest pet peeve of mine is people reach out to me and ask me a question that's on Google. Mm -hmm. Use my time better than that. Come to me after you've exhausted all of your resources and ask me because I have a lot of information that I can share. But if you waste your time with me asking me things that you can find on Google or find on, on a blog I've written or then you're wasting your access to more information that I haven't put out there yet. So it just it just irritates me when people do that. Like, what's in a business plan? Are you serious? What, What should I put in my pitch? Are you serious? Is that a real question? Maybe 15 years ago when that wasn't a resource that's everywhere. But if you're talking to somebody like me or someone that's even more seasoned to me. Like if I had a chance to sit down with Gary Vee, I would not be asking him, what, what do you do on a pitch? Or what do you recommend? I will be trying to get to things that he didn't say. And he says a lot. So then I would watch everything he ever did. And I will read everything he ever wrote. And then I will find a question that he didn't address or something that I want him to expand upon. So people don't even know how to use their time and, and use other people's time and their access to people. And they ask the they just don't get it. And maybe it is really more of like how to network and how to get to what you want. But it takes, you know, be strategic about your interactions with people so you can get the best out of them.
1: Yes. And then that also makes me think when you're, we're talking about interacting with people and making sure that we're using their time wisely so, from your perspective, let's talk about mentorship a little bit. Do you mentor young people that are at, that not specifically in the tech industry, but just any young person, or even someone that's on your level? Because mentorship can go both ways.
2: Yeah. So, me, my peers, and I definitely have a peer mentor network. So it's like, yes, I'm mentored by a lot of people that are. Um, I mentor people; they mentor me. I do have, you know, some young people that I do, um, excuse me, stay in touch with and mentor, but. Where I'm at right now in my personal development and in my career, it has to be mutually beneficial. So I really, I do want to reach back and help people, but I want to put myself in a position that I really can help them. And so the mentors that I have now and the people that I lean on now are my are the, my entrepreneur network. And we are, it's an open book with each other. I mean, we we get together on a regular basis. We We talk very openly. I can ask, you know, any question, resources I can ask for, I can ask for introduction, I can ask, you know, the hard questions, what do I do um, about this or that, and and it's important to have those people, but we're, we're on each other's level. It's like it's we're helping each other to get ahead, and, and it's a, a large group of people, not, you know, I would say large because it's, it's grown a lot, but it's definitely not large in comparison to the general market, of course, but there is a community of women and of, you know, Black people that are working together at the same time to move each other forward collectively so that we can reach back in a way that's going to be very impactful on the overall culture. But it, that takes time. It, it's I always call it the civil rights movement of tech in a venture capital because it takes a lot of people going out there and putting... You know, themselves out there and doing the work and making the sacrifices and being alienated, and for them to open doors for other people. And, you know, we are on the back of the bus. You know, it's definitely not the same situation, of course, as civil rights. But when it comes to equality and fairness and, and access to networks and capital, we are behind. But we're getting there. But we cannot sit around and wait for other people to invest in our people. We have to do it ourselves. So all of us who are you know, making money in tech, having these large exits, and a lot of people that I know eventually will have a substantial exit. That is when you can really make a difference. We can go and turn around and say, I'm going to be an investor and I'm going to now give people the opportunity to have access to capital that I never had. And that's the way like so that's not a handout but if I see somebody working hard and they just are not getting a break, you know, they're not finding someone to invest in them, I would love to be able to invest in them. Not hand them the money, but clearly if they've earned the money and I, a lot of people are that way that I know.
0: So it sounds like in the future you want to be an investor.
2: Oh yeah, 100%. Like, Absolutely.
0: Okay.
2: For sure. Definitely. I mean, I I already know some of the some of the funds that I want to invest in and some people that we're gonna come together and create some um, funding opportunities that we've talked about doing after we are able to exit
1: ourselves. So before you become an investor, we should probably talk about what you currently do a little bit in more detail. So you have flat out, which you kind of described earlier, and so you have flat out and your software company. So I want to learn more about the whole, your vending machine operations, because it seems like from, at least from our conversation, that when you started doing vending machine operations, that was kind of ahead of its time. And now, at least in the United States, they've kind of caught up to what you're doing currently, right?
2: It's getting there. I mean, thanks to, thanks to um, a couple of startups and now major companies like Amazon and Google and Snap using um, automated retailing now more, you know, Amazon has their package lockers, Snapchat, their spectacle machine. But yeah, definitely. But I started, you know, back with flat out wanting to just sell these shoes and vending machines as an emergency footwear solution for women. I just, as you know, I started this shoe company and I, it's to meet a need. And when you have a product or a service, you want to meet the customer where they are. You want to, and that's where it starts. You know, it just goes through the process. You want to start a business. Okay, who are my customers? All right, where are they? And okay, my customers are online. They're shopping in stores and they're out places and their feet hurt. So for me, I thought it would be cool to have a vending machine that are in places that women are wearing heels often. Airports, nightclubs, conference centers. And I thought it was going to be an easy solution because I've seen vending machines everywhere. And I didn't think it would be too hard to put a shoe in them. And so I went out looking for a company to build a custom vending machine for me, and I couldn't find one. And that's when I started Solutions Vending, but it was called Shoe Vending International because it was a very, I just thought of the company to meet a need for myself. And the only reason why I didn't do the vending machine underneath flat out of fields is because my investors were saying, trying to build hardware is too capital intensive you need, you're, you're using all your money to build things. Because I was trying to build these vending machines and I and I built two of them, they didn't work. That was like $15,000 wasted. And my investors were like, no, this is, doesn't make sense. So you should just focus on the shoes. So, I mean, you know, that's the thing. It's like you, when you're a CEO and you, it is your business and you work for yourself, but you still do have to be accountable to other people. Like, it's not like I'm the boss and nobody can tell me anything, especially if you take other people's money. You are still, you know, you can't just do whatever you want. So I said, all right, I understand this is the money you invested. You don't agree with how I'm spending it. I'm going to start a whole new company to just build shoe vending machines. So it, I never even planned to scale it. I didn't think it was going to do anything but just build machines for me. So I did. We were able, I, I found someone named Mike Henrade. I found him on LinkedIn. He agreed to partner with me and build these vending machines for flat out. I raised some money for that company, and you know, pitched to investors about the need for customized shoe vending machines to not only sell to flat out, but I could sell them to competitors and anybody. There's a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, but there's at least four other companies that are selling rollable flat. And so I said, all right, well I can sell them machines too. You know, there's, that's fine. And after I launched those first five machines to test, just as a beta, people kept asking me, can I build them a machine for? other things like hair and t-shirts. And so I changed the company name to solutions vending to what, to broaden the scope of the type of machines that we could build. So at this time, it's still just building customized hardware. Then flat out started to really take off and get really busy. And I just shifted my focus from the machines altogether because hardware is really capital intensive and me trying to be CEO of two companies was not going to work at that time. So I really put SBI on the back burner for a couple of years and just so I kept testing the vending machines and just um, studying the market because I knew how big vending machines were are in Asia and in Europe, but really Asia. And I knew that um, the United States is always behind the curve when it comes to technology and innovation. And so I just been watching it. And when facial recognition technology started to really pick up, my friend Brian Burkin has a company called Kairos. And I said, you know, can this, he started using it in retail locations, physical storefronts. And I said, well, could this technology be used in a vending machine? Because these, you know, vending needs to be, needs some innovation. Um, it's not really a scalable As compared to other types of retail like e commerce, because vending machines don't collect any data from or about their customers. All they do is swipe a credit card, which only 15% of vending machines have credit card capability, put some coins or dollars in, and the product drops out, and you have no future communication with that customer. They don't even get a receipt, and you have no interaction with that customer again. And that is not how people are used to shopping these days, and that's not how. Retailers are used to interacting with their customers these days. And so um, when I asked him, could we apply this technology to vending machines, if there's a way to do it, he said yes. And that's when I got the idea to use um, facial recognition algorithms to collect demographic data about shoppers in front of vending machines and calculate conversion rates for vending machines, meaning how many people walk up to the machine or engage with the machine versus how many actually make a purchase which if you have an e-commerce store, you can use Google Analytics to determine that. But there's really no way to understand shopping behavior, patterns, demographic information, or anything, you know, as vending machines stand today. So that's when I, you know, created an idea. I just had an idea. I wrote it up, created a, a essentially like a business plan and what I wanted to do and the kind of the software that I wanted to build. I wanted to build a, a dashboard that is like a Shopify for vending that has the tools and the data analytics ability of Google and Google Analytics, and the reporting ability and integration uh, capabilities that Shopify has for other e-commerce tools, and I want you know wanted to create this commerce dashboard, you know, using face recognition. And that's um, it's been since February 2016 that I've been that I had that idea, and spent six months really fleshing it out and, and learning the market, a whole new market of software and data and Vending those things, and I searched around. I searched a patent search and spent a lot of time understanding could I really bring this to market? And is this something other people are doing? And after doing spending that time searching patents, and no one has a patent on it, I filed for a patent even before I built it. I filed for a patent, and then I found a team to help me build it. They believed in the vision, and we're building it. We launch it next month, so it's not even out yet. This This dashboard, this platform. So the MVP, which is the minimum viable product, the very base of what we're doing is going to be released next month. And then we'll, as a software company, just continue to improve and build on that software. And as we have more users and people giving us feedback and telling us what they like or don't like, we'll just continue to build a product, evolve. And I honestly don't know where the end game is, which is the fun part. I don't know what it's going to turn into. I have no idea. I have, I have a hypothesis, but we all know that scientifically it's very rare that you're 100% correct. So right. it's fun. It's fun to be on the journey and just be building something in, as you go.
1: Right. And, you know, one thing that you touched on that I was very, like, clapping in the background when you said it was that you actually patented the idea even before you launched it. I feel like patent and trademarks are something that sometimes as a business, some people are a little bit behind on sometimes, and then that's when you kind of get screwed over. But let's talk about your patent, because some people don't even know how to do a patent. So can you describe the process a little bit and what actually goes into getting your patent to contained? A lot of money. <laughs> money. <laughs> um, money. Lawyers.
2: Mm-hmm. Lawyers. That's what it takes, really, um, a technical person. So I found my CTO, my lead, and I had three developers to help me figure out what this looks like. You know, a patent is it's a lot of work. You have to know what you're patenting. You have to compare it. So we did a lot of patent research, seeing what's out there on the market with vending machines, what's vending software, things like that. Um, you could do that on your own, uh, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, you can research and search patents and read them. Now, they're they're in legal language. And luckily for me being an entrepreneur for 16 years, I understand law and contracts and I understand legal terminology and I can re- I can read contracts and understand them. Most people can't because they're really written in a totally different language. And so that's important because patents are a lot of words and a lot of things that you may not understand. So you know, taking time to study that, but then taking time to be able to communicate and completely write out your business process and what is proprietary, meaning what is unique and defensible about what you're building. And so it took us five months and a lot of people working on it. And we have a year, so it's like provisionary because we're still writing it. You have a year to make changes to it before you file it and complete you're filing and request that and then they review it and then they can approve it or not approve it. So it's pending, um, but we haven't even completely filed it yet because we're still building our product. And so as we build, we, it's like more things we want to add to the patent as we better understand what we're building. And you want to be as different as possible from other patents. So you have to re- really research. And it's a, it's, 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 with anything, it's just a lot of research involved. And um, it is expensive, probably about $10,000. A good patent is
1: uh, worth a lot more money than that. So it sounds like the three main things that you need for a patent are the coins. (laughs) Without any money, you're not getting this done. You need time and resources to actually research, to make sure that there aren't other patents out there like the one that you're making and making making sure that you can even read the other patents, which... I'm not sure how many other people actually have that skill. And then the third one is just like I kind of repeating myself from before, but the time to actually sit down and make sure that you write a patent that's good for what you're doing and make sure it covers every little step of what you're trying to create. But it sounds like you have a good handle on what you're doing. So I'm sure it will be successful. Thank you. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm learning as I go. It's, it's, it's definitely fun,
2: but it's all new for me. I like to challenge myself as an entrepreneur. This is my first time filing for, you know, a patent and it's, it's great to, to have a patent that, you know, um, I hope that it goes through and I feel like it will. I feel strongly based on our research that it, it will, but it's another accomplishment that I'm happy to have, like a black woman with a patent and vending technology. Pretty cool.
1: I think that's pretty awesome. How many people can actually say that? Not a lot, but after me, there will be more. So that's yes. Yeah. So let's talk about your future a little bit. So obviously, you have the patent. You have your vending machine business. As you kind of said, you don't really know where the future. You have an idea of where the future could lead for you, but as we said before, there's never a hundred percent chance that you can predict that but as for you being in the tech community and things that you're building, how do you see the future for yourself?
2: Definitely see myself selling both my businesses and then continuing to be an advisor. So I definitely see myself investing in as an investor and as an advisor, having, um, being involved with a lot more startups. I do not see myself as a CEO again after these two flat out in the, SVI, I would like to retire mm-hmm. as a CEO and just be you know, a mentor, advisor, investor, and a speaker for the okay. rest of my life and just chill. But I've been working for now 17 years and my goal was never to, you know, my goal was to work for 25 years and retire. So okay. that's where I'm working. I'm so I'm in year then
1: Yes. So you have, you said 25 years of working, so eight more years make your goal yeah. come true. Or you can maybe retire early and just go sick.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I I could exit sooner and retire. So those are those are great to have. I would love to see that. I would love to be able to exit sooner, but at the same time it's it's important to exit at the right time. So I'm not in a rush. I'm not I gotta do what's right for the company and I can't just jump the gun.
1: Right, and then earlier I just want to touch on a few things that we said earlier. So we were talking about, you know, both being from Ohio and the tech space back in the day was not large at all. So I know currently there's more accelerators and more money going into tech startups in Ohio. So do you? What is your thoughts on the future growth for Ohio and the tech space?
2: It's coming. I, it's, it's you know, there's a lot of money and there's a lot of money in the Midwest in general. There's definitely a lot of money in Ohio. A lot of opportunity for people of color and women, you know, with this these new efforts towards increasing diversity. I think it's it's coming. It's, it's not... See, there's diversity, but the inclusion part is what's lacking. Because you can put somebody mm-hmm. in the room, but that doesn't mean you're including right. them. They're just there. And so I feel like Ohio has got it down, diversity, inviting people. But now Ohio needs to include. And so I... Here, living half in hot Ohio and half everywhere else, but half in Ohio so that I can contribute to that the inclusion part. But it's definitely getting there, and that's why I came back. It's it's a lot. It's definitely not easier, but if you're strong and you have a good business, you can, it's you can get more visibility as a woman or person of color in markets that's not saturated like New York or San Francisco or one of the you know one of those places. The Midwest is a great place to get your seed capital.
1: Right. And then one last question. So you mentioned, obviously, you went to Rye, you went to Ohio State, but you said you would not take classes again. And obviously, as we mentioned, at this point, you could teach a class. But for someone who is not in, not fully, like, for instance, someone, you started off in journalism, then you went to tech. For someone who's looking to get in the industry but needs some more tech guidance in regards to the classes, do you have any recommendation for what people should be taking or attending to get those skills?
2: You know, it depends. Like there's no there's no cookie cutter thing. Like if you go go to General Assembly, they have anything you can think of. So tech is tech is no longer a broad umbrella of tech. Very specialized and very specific. So, you know, I would say start with what do you want to do. Look and research somebody that's doing what you want to do and see what they have went to school for, what they've studied, and then take those classes. And the good thing about it is you don't have to get a degree to learn how to code or to learn systems engineering or to learn how to d- develop, you know, excuse me, manage a software product, project. Those are things you can take online as a, as a course. So it starts with really understanding how you want to use it, getting a general Taking a general class in tech is not going to help you. You have to. It's really important to like be specialized in something. So that's what I would recommend.
1: I totally agree because right now tech has expanded so much. If you don't know what you're actually passionate about, you're about you can get lost in stuff. Yeah. The sauce.
2: Yeah. So Don, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's Always a, it's a pleasure to talk.
0: And there you have it. Dawn's story is unique and one for the books. And I appreciate her being on the podcast today. And thank you so much for listening to episode 11 of Black Tech Unplugged. If you really enjoy what you're hearing, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I truly appreciate it. Until next time.